0: Nutrition education is greatly influenced by the experiences and opinions of the educator about food and bodies. I think if each individual teacher listening to this can think about, well, what messages do I want to convey to my students? And what we really would love for teachers to think about is let's leave out weight. Let's leave out these messages that smaller is better. And these messages that there are good foods and bad foods, and instead support kids in eating a variety of foods and having positive relationships with food.
1: The podcast is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Ever Active Schools. Each episode, we speak with different leaders in their fields about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Anna Lutz and Catherine Zavodny, who are both registered dietitians that have expertise in treating eating disorders to talk about positive nutrition messages in the school setting. Just a reminder that hopefully this podcast format will allow you to pursue some sort of activity that will make you feel better in your body today. I would love to ask, before we go into your background, Catherine and Anna, about how you take care of your own self. I have learned as I've gotten older that wellness is so individual, and I really appreciate hearing from others about the habits that they've cultivated to make sure that they are at their best. So if you could share a strategy or two that's worked for you, we'd really appreciate it.
2: Sure, I can go ahead and uh, jump in with that. This is Catherine. I'm a little alarmed at how much sleep I seem to need. If I'm not in bed by 10pm, I am really kind of feeling it the next day. So the most important thing for me is really making sure that I'm prioritizing getting to bed at a reasonable hour and making time to get enough sleep at night
0: is a big one for me.
1: And it affects every dimension of wellness if you get enough
0: sleep. How about you, Anna? I really find that once a day I need to physically get out of the house and go on a long walk. I think my body needs to know that it's not trapped (laughs) and that um, there's a world out there.
1: Me too. I need a daily constitutional. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So tell us a little bit about your background and your professional roles today and why you have become passionate about how health and specifically nutrition is addressed in schools.
0: Well, this is Anna and I'm a dietitian in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the focus of my practice has always been working with individuals with eating disorders. And through that work, I've become very interested in how we talk to children about food because I really see it as an opportunity to have some influence of preventing eating disorders later in life. The rhetoric that we all have around, quote unquote, the obesity epidemic for the last 10, 15 years I really fear has had a big influence on our children and how they interact with food and how they think about bodies. And it's filtered into education, it's filtered into parenting. And so I have a big passion of really thinking about how we should be talking to kids about nutrition.
2: Yeah, I would agree. This is Catherine. Anna and I both do clinical eating disorders, nutrition therapy in an outpatient setting, and overwhelmingly. We see our adult clients who can trace their distress around food back to something very early in life. The pattern that that we see over and over is this generational manifestation of body dissatisfaction and stress around food and this burden of needing to eat the correct way so that we have the correct kind of body. And so what we see is... The adults, like, like Anna said, whether as parents or teachers in all kinds of different roles, they are sending these messages that teach us that there's one right way to eat, there's one right way to have a body, that weight is really more important than anything else when it comes to our health and then children receive those messages, children think in a very black and white way, and they hear those messages, and they internalize those messages, but not in kind of an appropriate or accurate way, then those children grow up kind of the cycle just repeats itself. And so Anna and I both are really passionate and excited about breaking that cycle by encouraging adults in those roles to be more mindful about the way that children learn and the way that children think about these things, so that we can promote more of a a protective message for kids. So hopefully we can start to change that landscape in which we all learn about food and eating in our bodies.
1: In Canada, we use the comprehensive school health framework. One of the three priorities under this paradigm is, quote, healthy eating. And I wonder what you think of that term healthy eating as dietitians. What do you consider to be healthy eating and how would it benefit all members of a school community to maybe make that more of a priority?
2: I think the most important message that we all need to get about, quote, healthy eating is that there's not just one definition of that. And I think that's where we really get into trouble in a school setting. Our eating habits start in our families of origin and for our children, the families that they live with. And those patterns and and traditions are determined by so many different factors that are going to be different for each child. And so I think the most important thing for teachers to keep in mind is that this concept of healthy eating is so multifaceted and can really look different for different children.
0: I think when people think about healthy eating, right now it's being defined as what people eat. Mm.
2: You know, what are the
0: individual food items that people eat? And there are certain foods that are deemed acceptable or healthy and certain foods that are not. What both Catherine and I wish is that we could all zoom out and really see nutrition for what it is, which is multifaceted. Like Catherine was saying, it's about someone's relationship with food. It's about the emotional connections that people have with food around a dinner table. It's about the satisfaction that food gives us. We could go on and on and on. There's so many different facets. And so to have a healthy relationship with food or to eat in a helpful way is way bigger than just what is on the plate or what's in the refrigerator.
2: One of the things that we see so frequently in our offices as clinicians is that people are really fearful of food. And so we understand very clearly that being fearful of food is not healthy, right? It actually can contribute to some very unhealthy eating patterns, but one of the things that we see that we find just so concerning is that a lot of these messages that are being delivered to young children actually promotes that fear of food. A lot of the ways that we currently deliver mainstream nutrition education messages to children in that way actually would potentially result in them being less healthy in that way if it promotes anxiety or or fear about what if I don't eat the correct way? What if I'm not healthy and it's my fault or what if my family You know, is eating in this way that I've been told is bad or wrong, and that anxiety is what we would consider that the opposite of healthy.
1: You're reminding me of my daughter who had a lovely kindergarten teacher, and her very well intentioned goal for snack time was I I want everyone to bring a healthy snack. And if everyone brings a healthy snack, then we can all do the dance of joy. (sighs) But if we If there's somebody that doesn't bring in the snack that's healthy, then we can't. And she understandably was so stressed. I remember having these debates with her in the morning where she'd say, I can't bring this banana muffin. It looks like a cupcake. And then we won't be able to do the dance of joy. And I have to say, this teacher was an excellent teacher in almost every other respect. But what my daughter remembers from that kindergarten year was worrying about the snack check that's her memory. And that just breaks my heart, because that is just one thing that the teacher just didn't understand how that would be received by a four year old.
2: Exactly. And I think it's really important that you pointed out that it is well intentioned. These teachers are not trying to cause harm, they're not trying to cause stress, they're just trying to do the best that they can. And we do all agree that we want our children to be healthy. And we want them to grow up eating a a variety of wholesome foods that serve their bodies well. And we do all have that goal in mind. But it's this understanding of how, like you said, how is this message going to be received? And what might be the unintended consequences?
1: Yes. So what do you think can be the main goals of nutrition education in school settings? We've talked a little bit about what not to do, but what could we do in talking with students?
0: We've talked a lot about what should the goals be, like you're asking. And a big one, especially for younger children, is being exposed to different foods, just having no pressure taste tests, learning where foods come from, whether it's visiting a farm, whether it's growing a garden, or maybe watching a video, learning basic food preparation skills. These are all things that when when I think about my children leaving my home, what do I want for them when it comes to nutrition is really feeling relaxed, feeling flexible about food, knowing where food comes from, being able to prepare food. And that's what I think defines quote unquote, a healthy relationship with food, rather than these kind of black and white messages that have become the mainstream. What have I missed, Catherine?
2: The hallmark of any child coming along and and eventually at their own pace, developing that healthy relationship with food that we talk about, is giving opportunities for positive interactions with food that may or may not include eating that food. Every food at some point along the way is new and unfamiliar to a child. A lot of children really prefer those kind of more processed foods because they're predictable. They know like a Cheerio is a Cheerio is a Cheerio. You might have blueberries every day of the week, but one day they're big and juicy and sweet. And the next day they're small and tart. And the next day, they're kind of mealy and they're really different. So understanding that those food experiences are are new and unfamiliar. And for different temperaments and different kids, that might be more difficult to come to the point where they're feeling comfortable. So allowing those positive food experiences and providing for those, whether it's preparation experiences, or no pressure taste tests, or having lessons where we learn about the foods that are enjoyed in different cultures, but not putting pressure on children to eat this and accept it before they're maybe ready.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about finding this sweet spot of what's the best way to talk about healthy eating. On the one hand, it is a priority and it's some, there is information related to it that we can share. And we can model as teachers what healthy eating looks like. On the other hand, we don't want to make them anxious or obsessed with perfect eating, because we know that can lead to eating disorders. So... How can we make sure that we're striking the right balance and that when we are promoting healthy eating as teachers, that we aren't doing any harm?
2: So this feels like a good opportunity to talk about the feeding framework that Anna and I both adhere to, both professionally and in our our own families, which is Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility, which details the parents' or the adults' jobs in feeding and differentiates those from the child's jobs in eating. So, real quickly, the parents' jobs in feeding are to decide what's being offered, where we're eating, and when we're eating. So, if we have a regularly scheduled meals and snacks. The parents decide what we're offering for that meal or snack and then where we're going to eat it. We're not just going to go off into any corner of the house. We're going to sit here together most of the time. No one does this 100% of the time. (laughs) And then once those jobs have been done, it's the child's jobs to come and decide, am I going to eat this and how much of this am I going to eat? So picking and choosing from what the parent has chosen to provide deciding what things I'm going to eat and how much of them I'm going to eat. And so the way that can be really useful to a teacher is that, you know, if we're eating snacks or lunches at school, those jobs of deciding what's being offered, where we're eating and when we're eating have already been done. And so just keeping in mind that now it's the child's job to decide what am I going to eat? Am I going to eat this? What order am I going to eat the things in my lunchbox? It's not our job as teachers to influence how they eat or what they're eating that they've already, whether it's in their lunchbox or on the tray coming through the the lunchroom, that's already been decided. I think one of the most valuable things we can do in terms of promoting, quote, healthy eating in the context that we're talking about is to sit down and enjoy a meal with children and model that communal experience of eating and breaking bread together and enjoying social time without shining this huge spotlight on exactly how you're eating and what are you eating, but really to kind of shift the focus to the people who are sitting together and, and eating together and And that really, to me, gets at the very healthy, the very authentically healthy aspect of of eating that is coming in and enjoying this very human experience of enjoying food and enjoying the people around me.
0: If we go back to that division of responsibility, to really remember that it's not the kids who are grocery shopping, Mm -hmm. or necessarily putting their meals and snacks together. And we shouldn't be putting that onto the children. You know, why is this in your lunch or why did, is this in your snack? That's just not a, an age-appropriate job for the children, even if, let's say, they are putting their lunch together, then to kind of layer on any kind of fear or shame makes that even more problematic. And so, again, really stepping back and saying, okay, as a teacher, what I can do is I can model taking breaks to eat. I can model sitting down with my children and eating. I can have really positive food interactions with my students in the classroom, but it's not my job to change the actual food that is coming in in a lunchbox or a snack.
1: I think that takes a lot of pressure off of teachers. Like, that's just not my responsibility. I'm just here to make sure this is a positive experience.
2: I've had this conversation with educators before, and they tell me, oh, well, parents ask me, parents expect me, like, can you please make sure Johnny eats his sandwich before he eats his cookie? And that's kind of a, a demand that some parents have. And I, I would really love to be able to empower teachers to say no, that's not something that I can be responsible for. I'm sorry, that's outside the scope of, of what I'm here to do.
1: You've given us some great ideas and suggestions for handling the eating context that teachers and students will be in multiple times a day throughout the year. We are responsible as teachers, however, to cover the curriculum, and there are curricular outcomes that do relate to nutrition in the health education curriculum. So how can teachers help students to interpret those messages and those learning outcomes on nutrition in a positive way?
0: Well, something that Catherine and I talk a lot about is really thinking about that nutrition education needs to be developmentally appropriate. Educators more than anyone understand this, that we teach math in a developmentally appropriate way. We teach Social studies in a developmentally appropriate way and nutrition should be no different. And for some reason, where we are right now with how we talk about food, we are teaching preschoolers about food in the same way that we're teaching high schoolers. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that. That if we really think about we have preschoolers here or we have young elementary age children here and this is where they are in their cognitive development. And so let's shape our nutrition lessons to meet that. And as children grow up, nutrition is a very abstract subject. It's not black and white. There's a lot about nutrition that we can't see, we can't understand even, and the complexities of it. So that really needs to be reserved for high school students who really can understand, you know, are more abstract thinkers and can really understand that. And so more than anything, to encourage educators to think, okay, what is developmentally appropriate for this age um, child? And also, to really leave weight bias out of it, to not infuse nutrition lessons with this popular diet culture that smaller is better, or that somehow we're supposed to be quote unquote controlling children's weight, that that really can be harmful.
1: Mm -hmm. And you use Piaget's stages for your model, correct?
0: Yes, we do
1: which most teachers should be familiar with, but maybe you could give a few examples of some of the stages of cognitive development and the kinds of nutrition education that are appropriate at those stages.
0: So we know teachers listening know that in preschool to in lower elementary school, the children are in Piaget's pre-operational stage. Young children are, are more concrete thinkers That there is a shift as they get a little bit older in that maybe first grade, second grade, there might be a shift a little bit to being able to categorize foods or just categorize items in different ways. But when children are in this pre-operational stage, we really want to be focusing on the eating environment. We can be teaching about gardening and agriculture, like we mentioned earlier. One of the lessons we like to talk about is, you know, reading a book about a certain kind of food, and then preparing it in the classroom, and then having a taste test. So neutral exposure is an important part. And so kids are learning through their experiences. All levels, we really emphasize a respect for diversity in eating. And so a lot of the nutrition advice out there is very Eurocentric, which is not helpful. Respecting different people's families' Foods and their traditions and where they come from. And then, as you're kind of going up into upper elementary school, so ages seven to 11 is kind of how we're defining it, then children move into the concrete operational stage. And so their thinking is a bit more logical, but it remains quite concrete. But that might be a time where we might add in just talking about food groups. So for the young kids, We don't even recommend talking about food groups because that they're not quite ready to be able to categorize foods, put them in different categories and understand that some foods are in more than one Mm -hmm. food group, which can be very confusing even for adults. So, you know, in upper elementary school, we might start to introduce these ideas of these different food groups, but without any moral disclaimers or these food groups are better than these others, just very matter of fact. And Then as you move to the middle school and high school students, that's when they're in Piaget's formal operational stage. They can think in a more abstract way. The high school students might be able to understand kind of hypothetical concepts. And that's when we might introduce nutrients, physiology, what balanced food and meals look like, and then that media literacy we, we recommend adding in in high school That's what people think about as, quote unquote, nutrition education, the nutrients and physiology, the health connections, what's a balanced meal. But we really think that needs to be reserved until the children are in that formal operational stage.
2: From the very beginning, there is this concept that when we teach about nutrition, we're implicitly teaching about health we really need to hold off on any health implication messaging until they've got that much more abstract thinking. I mean, one of the most classic common things we see is doing the sort these foods into either healthy or or unhealthy or good and bad foods pretty reliably, the good foods are fruits and vegetables. And the bad foods are pretty much anything else, right? (laughs) And so, but a perfect illustration of why this is harmful is that we've got all these good foods over here in the good category that are fruits and vegetables. But if we ate only those foods ever, kids are growing, their bodies are growing, their nutritional caloric needs are actually pretty high, and they're not going to meet those needs with just fruits and vegetables. We do have some evidence that kids just, they can't integrate those messages of don't eat too much of this or eat mostly this or limit this, which is how we want kids to be understanding those things. But we can't send those messages with language, right? We can't explicitly get those messages across. Those messages are much more effectively communicated with modeling and what families do from day to day. And they sort of learn just by repetition and by what they see and experience in their own homes and in their own families, that this is what breakfast looks like. And when we have dinner, we have all of these different parts of it. It's not just vegetables on my, you know, it's so funny. Like so frequently I'll see a kid in a storybook with a dinner plate that has like broccoli and peas and spinach only. My kid's favorite (laughs) supper. How did you know? (laughs) So I mean, it just really illustrates just how it, it gets very problematic very quickly.
1: And I think Piaget's framework actually explains to me why sometimes children interpret those messages so concretely, because they do think in black and white, and it's for their benefit that they do. They and they want most kids want to be on the right side of the line. So once you draw a boundary or a rule, it's like, if you say, you know, this kind of food is bad, not only will they want to avoid that food, but if they have that food ever, they'll feel, they might feel that they are bad. Mm. I think that rigid stage is why we have to be so careful. And, And research has shown that there have been some school based health initiatives that do lead to eating disorders. And so it's when they rigidly interpret those things that it can lead to trouble later on.
2: I I think about my adult clients all the time when I'm thinking about this material. And I mean, how many adults out there just assume that if something tastes good, it's bad for you? And we talk
1: about guilt around those foods a lot. Yes,
0: yes. And, you know, I think of young children, they want to please their teacher. They want to do what their teacher is saying for the most part. The example you gave with your daughter and the snack. I just think of those kindergartners wanting the teacher to be happy. And really how complicated and problematic that can be when we're interfering with this young child's relationship with food and putting in these, like you said, shame and guilt and expectations. A point that Catherine has made a lot is the adult clients that we are working with, so many of their goals is to return to intuitive eating, to eat food, to not have good and bad foods, to not feel guilty, basically undo all the messages that culture has Given them all their life. And what if we just stopped giving these messages? You know, and school is a wonderful place to put our effort into changing these messages that children receive around food.
2: If we don't unlearn it, we don't have to relearn it. And so, really, the name of this game is about protecting that for kids that intuitive, embodied way that kids have of going through the world and relating to food. And supporting them, keeping that and hanging on to that as long as possible.
1: It's such a joy to watch little children eat when that hasn't been tampered with. And they take a little nibble of this or try that or have some cookie, but not all of it. And, you know, as an adult watching, it's like, oh, wow, this is just so easy for you. And that's what. I think you're getting at is that we want to maintain the ability to do that so that students can listen to their appetites and their bodies and make those decisions for themselves.
0: Something I'd love to add in, I'm, I'm thinking about a teacher at my daughter's school who we've had lots of conversations about all of this with. And she asked me, well, what about the kids' who are coming from poor homes who, in her opinion, were bringing, quote unquote, unhealthy food for snacks. What about them? Don't we need to be teaching them about nutrition? I get asked that question a lot, is more than anyone We need to be not creating fear and shame around food for these children. They need to have confidence in their family that they know how to feed them and they know how to feed them well. And no matter who the child is, we don't want them to be looking at their food and feeling embarrassed or feeling confused. Well, why is my mom giving me this food if my teacher says it's bad? And creating exposure to food is an appropriate place to provide nutrition education. So that I was just thinking that might be something coming up for some of our listeners.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of touching on the social determinants of health, which impact what kind of food is sent from home. I wonder what advice you would give to maybe a teacher who's worried about a student not getting enough food, like they're not bringing enough to school, what advice would you give to that teacher to handle that in a way that helps that student the most?
0: If it's a true worry that there's not enough food, two things come to my mind would be to talk to the school guidance counselor and find out if if they know anything about what might be going on with the family. And if it's appropriate for the teacher or guidance counselor to talk with the parents, do they need some resources to obtain food, not to direct it right to the child. That's Again, that would be the job of the parents to make sure that there's enough food. You wouldn't want to create that shame directly with the child.
1: Yeah. And there are programs, I know in Calgary, there's the brown bag lunch program where volunteers do make lunches to fill those short gaps. And sometimes it's a case of you know a student forgot their lunch and sometimes it's a more persistent not enough food is coming from home and so there are programs like that that teachers if their schools aren't connected with could seek out those connections and also i know that some schools have done fundraisers and then pass along grocery store gift cards to families there are different ways that a school might address that issue but i think you're really wise in not putting that on the student cuz that would be so much pressure and potentially embarrassing for that student. But to also, if it's a persistent issue, recognize that that student is not going to do their best learning if they're not getting enough fuel in the day. And so it is something that a, a teacher can help with. When we think about the daily ways that food can come up in a classroom or a school setting, how do you think teachers can be a subtle role model for healthy eating?
2: looking at other subjects, other academic subjects where eating messages can come across. I mean, we talk about this all the time, you'll see it in math problems, where there'll be like a word problem about this person ate this much and and ran this much and burned this many calories. And it's a it's a math problem. And I've also seen it in writing assignments and like persuasive opinion writing assignments about how you know, I really like oatmeal that is not quick oats, but the real thing. And I don't add sugar because that adds lots of calories and all this stuff. And really just being mindful of the sneaky ways that those messages can come across. One of the things that we really focus on a lot is encouraging educators to really just be mindful of the language that they use. We all are products of this diet culture. And really just encouraging teachers to be mindful of trying to be positive in the ways that we talk about food and to just avoid making comments that scrutinize bodies, whether it's our own body or or someone else's body, and to avoid some of the negative messages that can come across inadvertently in that way.
1: You're reminding me of my grade 10 science teacher, who I don't even know why she said it, but she said something about how you all are eating too much bagels <laughs> because we our school was right across from this bagel place it was the 90s so everybody yes. was eating like yes. a lot of bagels <laughs> it was a very cheap lunch to go and get a toasted buttered bagel and she it didn't have anything to do with what we were learning that day and yet i still remember it like it stood out as like oh important yeah. information <laughs> watch the bagels so yeah those little messages that we
0: sometimes don't even realize we're saying, sometimes sink deep. Totally agree. And I think we could even flip it around to the positive messages could sink deep. Also, I don't think teachers need to feel like they need to be performative, but when it feels right to pull out your your snack when the kids are eating a snack and fuel up for the rest of the day, or if there's a, a birthday party, there's cupcakes, sit down and enjoy a cupcake and model that that's okay to do. Or if there's a scenario where the kids are moving in some way to jump in and participate instead of sitting on the sidelines, that that can really have a positive impact if it's done in a real a real authentic way.
1: Neva Peran's research, she interviewed hundreds of girls and women and found that just one person modeling an intuitive relationship with their body, that embodied autonomy can make a difference. And teachers might be that one person that can help someone see their bodies, see, see food just a little bit differently.
0: Wow. That's wonderful.
1: Why is it important for teachers to be culturally sensitive when we are talking about food and nutrition?
2: Well, I mean, our classrooms are, are be- thankfully becoming more and more diverse, different cultures and different regions of the world have different ways that we relate to food, we have different kind of agricultural patterns, we have different histories, you know, food is a really important cultural exercise that we engage in with our families and with our communities. And that looks very different. And I think it, it does a real disservice not only to those students who are coming from diverse cultural backgrounds, but from the ones who are from the mainstream, whose family kind of nutrition customs or eating habits mimic more Eurocentric pattern. Because it behooves all of us to understand that there are there's more than one way to have a positive relationship with food and have a, a, quote, healthy eating pattern. That that can
0: look all kinds of different ways. And that that's a part of health, is for people to be connected with the food of their culture and background, and hopefully for us not to interfere with that. Just think of a child learning that there's a wrong or right way to eat at home and then going home to their parents and saying i'm not going to eat the food that you're fixing me. I mean that is the most unhealthy thing i can think of. <laughs> to go back to your first question about what is healthy eating. Healthy eating is sitting down with your family and eating the food that your family makes and when, i would never want anyone to get in the way of that. Yeah.
1: Do you have some examples of schools that you think have promoted healthy eating well that have done this in a responsible way that you would hope other schools would take inspiration from.
0: We have a lot of change that needs to happen in the schools and how diet culture has really influenced how we talk about food with with kids. But when we talk to individual teachers and we talk about developmentally appropriate nutrition education, it makes total sense to teachers because that's how they're taught to teach other subjects. Like we touched on earlier, a lot of times we're asking teachers to do less, not more. I do know a school here, they had a wellness committee that would do no pressure taste tests at lunch. And so they might make smoothies and kids could come up and taste at their leisure. I thought that was a really neat way from a school-wide perspective to expose kids to different foods. There would be one food item a month that they would come in and have no pressure taste tests in the cafeteria, but that could also certainly be done in the schools. More than anything, it's, I think, really on a on a teacher basis because we all are food experts, right? Or we all think we're food experts because we all eat, right? And so, so often what we see is nutrition education is greatly influenced by the experiences and opinions of the educator about food and bodies. I think if each individual teacher listening to this can think about, well, what messages do I want to convey to my students and what we really would love for teachers to think about is let's leave out weight. Let's leave out these messages that smaller is better and these messages that there are good foods and bad foods and instead support kids in eating a variety of foods and having positive relationships with food.
1: Do you have any advice for a teacher who wants to shift the culture in their school to be more inclusive and to have this model of nutrition messaging that's more age appropriate, how can we bring our colleagues on board to this different way of looking at healthy eating?
0: I think this is a great question. I think it would not be an easy thing to do. It would it would be challenging. But to start having these conversations in teacher meetings, and maybe even if it's possible to have a professional come in and talk about this, an eating disorder professional or specifically a nutrition educator that understands these these concepts. But it could start with saying that the staff room is a diet talk-free zone. Let's make it that when we're in the staff room, we're not going to talk about diets. We're not going to talk about bodies because most schools have all different size bodies. Any environment we have has all different size bodies, and we're not going to promote that. In the United States, there's oftentimes in schools all these posters about, quote-unquote, healthy eating or about, quote-unquote, childhood obesity. And I think if if that's the case, really working with the school to remove those posters. So many of our schools are really focused on bullying, but weight stigma is not in their thinking. Um, I know my daughter here who's In eighth grade, she talks about a poster in the gym that says the risks of obesity. And it has a person who's in a large body and has all these labels of the health consequences that this poster has attributed to someone's body size. And she's 13 years old. And she said, what if someone's body looks like that or their parent's body looks like that? And they're looking at this poster at school. And so you just think about the fear and the shame and the stigma that goes along with that and the harm that does. One thing that is really, really important
2: to remember when you're trying to encourage people to see this in a different light is that the science doesn't support us tackling this issue and coming down so hard with these shaming negative messages that that it's not associated with increased health behaviors. It's not associated with increased variety of of foods consumed and fruit and vegetable intake, and certainly not physical activity that actually those sorts of messages actually decrease the the types of physical activity that people engage in when those people feel like they're the target of those messages. So understanding that it's not just kind of an ideological message or or an emotional message, but that it's actually grounded in science that keeping these messages positive and inclusive is much better associated with improving health behaviors and outcomes.
1: I agree. And I think it's also not good for the adults in the building. And and that's another reason to make sure that our comments are, you know, diet free because we don't know who in the staff room might be struggling. And when you make a passing comment about a good food or, Oh, I shouldn't be eating this or complimenting someone on their weight loss, you don't really know how that will be interpreted, what's going on, and what people who are overhearing that conversation will take away from that exchange.
2: It's pretty much a guarantee that someone with an earshot is struggling. Yeah, it's true. We can look at the incidence of frank-diagnosed eating disorders, but that does not even scratch the surface of people who have significant distress with body image and and with their relationship with food. I mean, that's, I would say the majority of people are suffering in some way, with the way that they relate to food. So it's really pretty inevitable that someone hearing those comments is gonna be impacted in a negative way. Just even you with your 10th grade with the bagel comment, like those things just stick. Like we hear those things and we don't forget them. They're a lot more significant and and make a much bigger impact than we might intend for them to if we're just making these offhand comments.
0: Yes, so true. hmm
1: What is one way that teachers can help their students develop a more positive connection with food that they could even start doing tomorrow?
0: I think just talking to the children about food in general in in positive ways. Oh, what's in your lunch? What'd you eat for dinner last night? Weaving food in different ways into different assignments. It could be done in such a wonderfully positive way. Let's all write about our family's food traditions as a language arts assignment. Just really modeling and talking about food in a positive way can make such an impact.
1: And lastly, are there any resources that you would recommend for teachers who want to learn more about protective nutrition messaging and keeping things positive when it comes to healthy eating?
2: One of the best things that any adult that has any interaction with children who's concerned about this I really like to start with encouraging them to examine their own relationship with food and where like, if if any of this makes you uncomfortable, which it, very well may. It's important to turn your gaze inward and examine and reflect on why does this make me uncomfortable? What is my reaction to this? What is that about? Maybe starting with reading intuitive eating by Evelyn Tribole and Elise Resch, it just came out in its fourth edition that can be really invaluable in terms of just healing because this is all really just about healing the way that we relate to food as a society.
0: Absolutely. And to just circle back to us mentioning Ellen Satter earlier in this podcast that checking out the Ellen Satter Institute website and then any of Ellen Satter's books. We'll talk more about some of the concepts that we've talked about today.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and discussing your expertise on this topic. I think you've given us a lot of food for thought on how to think about healthy eating in the school setting and model that positive relationship with food in our bodies. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you for having us. We, We love talking about this. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed.